Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly edition of The Wrap. I'm Laura Leslie, WRAL Capital Bureau Chief. And I'm Travis Fain, WRAL State Government Reporter. And, of course, all the talk this week um, was about the, the big Duke hearing, of course. And we're talking about the uh, the rolling blackouts that affected, I think, half a million people in the, in the two Carolinas. That was on Christmas Eve. And so uh, in front of the NC Utilities Commission on Tuesday, Duke um, brought a raft of executive VPs and such to explain exactly what had happened and why those blackouts were necessary. Yeah, and I thought this was by far the most fulsome explanation we got. We actually got the names of plants uh, that failed to perform uh, up to what they were expected to. Uh, we understood better that what happened, we, and, and what happened in several cases uh, as far as what what happened? What, why these plants failed was instrumentation lines froze, is what Duke Energy told regulators. That uh, it wasn't a natural gas pipeline. It wasn't gas freezing in the pipeline, although they did say they had some pressure issues. It was instrumentation lines. I don't know precisely what that means. I, I did ask Jeff Brooks about that and what he said about He's the spokesman for Duke. And he said it's kind of like if you have um, a light that goes on in your car, right? That, And then other things in your car don't want to work because that light is on. That makes sense. So, you know, Duke was careful to say, you know, very few of these plants were actually offline. They were simply what they called derated, which means they were only able to produce maybe 50 percent of the capacity that they were supposed to be producing. But when you, um, you know, I have to point out, Duke has really kind of downplayed that, you know, throughout this, right? But when you look at the filing that they submitted to the Utilities Commission on Tuesday and you go through and you count up the number of, um, of megawatts that were derated on all these plants, we're talking like five different plants, one, almost 1. 1.4 gigawatts. And that's huge. That is a significant chunk of their normal output on any given day. So, you know, they say that it doesn't matter because they needed to buy power on, you know, the, the market anyway, power off the grid to, to cover for the really, really cold temperatures. But certainly it, must have, it would have been easier to get a little bit of power off the grid than to get that much power off the grid. Right. And, of course, this is happening simultaneously. Obviously, the cold weather is not just in North Carolina. It's right. all these other places, so these other utilities don't have power to sell them. And then I think one of the things that really snowballed, forgive the pun if that's a pun, on this situation is Duke Energy initially told customers, you know, half hour, 90 minutes, and then that they failed to kind of follow up quickly enough. And apparently there was some problem with their text yeah. messaging system where it takes hours to text message a lot of people. Which I don't makes un- no sense. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. I mean, I understand it's high volume. Uh, there's probably some vendor involved. But I mean, that that when I was sitting in that utilities commission, I thought, well, either I don't understand that at all or that's a real easy problem to fix or not have be a problem in the first place. Well, and the other big problem was the software that controls the shutdowns. So they have this software that they said tested just like a week ago. Right. That is supposed to manage if they ever needed, which they never have needed rolling blackouts before. It was supposed to. Um, it basically cycles things yeah. on and off in order for the blackout to, to not, roll. To roll. So it, people don't get stuck without power for like four hours. And like I lived in California for a while. And I mean, it, you know, those kind of we call them brownouts. Rolling brownouts are not unusual because, you know, there's just everybody you lose power for 15 minutes and then you move on. You know, um, and that way nobody has to lose power all day. Well, that sort of didn't work out. So the it got overloaded. It sounds like it started to work right, and then it as they kept submitting more requests, it just sort of didn't work. So they were having to manually um, start, well, shut down and then start hundreds of circuits um, yeah. in order for this to work. Yeah, which is one of the reasons it took just hours and hours and yeah. hours to uh, to get this situation under control. And of course, this is happening. 
you know, not in a vacuum for, for Duke Energy. We had that substation attack where someone shot up a couple of sub, substations in Moore County, causing blackouts there. Uh, and then the carbon plan has just come out, you know, on, uh, I guess, the day before New Year's Eve, so December 30th, the Utilities Commission followed up on House Bill 951, which y'all may remember is the 2021 legislative effort to plan uh, for future energies. Basically, how are we going to retire coal plants? Right. What, what, what are we going to do for energy uh, once we retire coal plants? And, and that plan came out. So there's a lot of moving parts right now for Duke Energy, which you know provides power to most of North Carolina. Right. Well, they make a lot of money off of it, but they also agree to be regulated. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure regulators are going to continue to look into this. We also know that FERC and NERC, which are the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the North American Energy Reliability Coalition, I think coalition, um, so it's sort of an industry group. Um, both parties are going to be investigating what happened. Um, so, you know, and, and as you pointed out, I mean, this was a widespread cold event. And I kind of wondered to myself, I was like, why would you think you'd be able to buy my, a lot of energy off the grid when that many states are in like, record cold temperatures. But as it turns out, they were able to buy energy on the grid during the polar vortex back in 2014. So that's what the thinking was there. Yeah. And I'm, hopefully there will be quite a few lessons learned. Yes. And I know we're continuing to look into this as well. Yeah. I got a couple of other things. You know, this the new Congress kind of started this week, uh, we well, they're there. <laughs> they're not sworn in. The Senate's uh, certainly, you know, ready for yeah. business, but the House. Uh, did you know that the House of Representatives they couldn't swear members in until a speaker is elected? I learned about that this week. I had not really been aware of that because it's never been an issue in my lifetime, you know. But yeah, it, um, it's a 1948 law that says that they have to be sworn in by the speaker. Um, and so, it's, oops. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, they didn't really anticipate a problem with it either. But anyway, so it's really a chicken and egg thing because these, these folks aren't even sworn in yet, but they have to they have to vote for the speaker in order to get sworn in. Yeah, and the North Carolina connection here uh, with Republicans struggling to pick a speaker is that Dan Bishop is one of, what is it, 20 Republicans who have refused to vote for Kevin McCarthy uh, and are pushing a, a candidate from further on the right. And and in and, and full disclosure, this is being recorded Friday afternoon. So by Friday evening, who knows, this may have all changed. But but yes, Jan Bishop was one of the 20. And um, and also there's another name, Patrick McHenry, who's been floated around, although I, know, I don't know how seriously, um, as a possible contender. But I will say he does not appear to be up in the realm with the likes of Steve Scalise as a likely backup. Yeah, but we are seeing uh, North Carolina Congressman Patrick McHenry's name and kind of some national media speculation of, if not Kevin McCarthy, who might be able to form a coalition and, and become speaker. Uh, McHenry's office has not been willing to engage, at least with me, on that issue. But why, why would they? I mean, you know, that's comment on speculation. Yeah, So exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else have we got this week, Laura? Oh, but before we move off too far off of Duke, I will tell people 7.30 p.m. Saturday night, I'm hosting our On the Record program. Again, that's our uh, on actual WRL-TV, our uh, policy roundtable. It is all about the carbon plan. I got a panel of experts. We spend, you know, whatever, 22 minutes we've got, uh, plus commercials, hashing it out. So, man, if you want to hear about stranded assets... And the nerdery is stunning. Oh, it's huge. It's so much. <laughs> it's good times. <laughs> it is, so we will melt your brain. <laughs> um, other stuff happening this week. Um, we should mention this was kind of a big one that got dropped on us. I think it was on Thursday. Uh, this, uh, Treasurer Falwell announced that uh, the state health plan will be moving to Aetna. 
as opposed to Blue Cross Blue Shield, who has had it for, I don't know, 40 years? 40 years. And this is one of the biggest contracts in state government. I mean, there are a lot of big contracts in but state government. But this is a huge one. This is a huge one. So you manage you know, billions of dollars in health care. There's 700,000 plus state employees, teachers, retirees, and then their dependents, you know, their families. Uh, and Dale Falwell, the state treasurer, who you know his office manages all this, is often said we are the largest, they are the largest uh, purchaser of health services in the state. Blue Cross Blue Shield not going gentle into that good night. Uh, they say they will appeal this decision. And that's a process that usually plays out with uh, large open records requests. Yeah. And then they comb through you know the decision-making process to move from Blue Cross Blue Shield to Aetna. And then it goes before an administrative law judge and then eventually can end up in the court system. So we could be a long way to go. But this is not supposed to take effect until 2025. Right. So two years, which is not that long. You nope. know, in the meantime, though, you got a lot of people who are on that health plan, your teachers, your, you know, your transportation workers, your social workers, you know, and they're all wondering what's going to happen to their health care, because at the moment, at least, Blue Cross Blue Shield definitely has the largest provider network um, in the state. And so, you know, this could mean this this change could mean that people may have to switch doctors. Now, Aetna has two years to build up its network, um, you know, and, and obviously it may find if it keeps this contract, it may find better leverage because right. it's going to have so many more consumers on it. But it is um, it's just a that's a big shakeup, a big shakeup. And it's also one that is marked by some strange secrecy. So apparently this vote was taken in December in a closed door session of the board of the state health plan. And the people that were there and the staff were forced to were required to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements. Mm. So it. Let's put it this way. I would love to see the minutes of that meeting. Yeah. And, you know, Folwell has one of the things he's complained about with Blue Cross Blue Shield is a lack of transparency because one of the things this provider does, the state health plan is self-insured. Right. Uh, so it's taxpayer money, it's employee premiums that are funding it. But you bring in somebody to manage it, Blue Cross Blue Shield or now soon Aetna. And one of the things Folwell has complained about is Blue Cross Blue Shield cuts deals with doctors and hospitals for how much the plan will pay. And a lot of that process is secret, and he has really pushed back against that. Isn't that that kind of an industry thing, though? It is an industry standard. Sure it is, but you can kind of game out in your head how that impacts pricing. I mean, there's a reason when you go to the hospital, if you don't have insurance, you get billed the most, even though you have the least amount of money. Uh, It's because giants like Blue Cross Blue Shield are, are able to negotiate uh, better rates, and they don't want anybody to know. They don't want Aetna or anyone else to know what they're what they're actually paying, because then that's a le- leverage for their competitors in, in negotiations with right. other hospitals. So I, I just don't. I just my question, I guess, is whether or not Aetna is going to be different about that. Uh, I'm not going to bet that they will, but I'm, we shall see. Uh, the treasurer says something like 600 people at Aetna are going to be working on this transition and that the contract will save the state. I believe he said $140 million. In the meantime, uh, Blue Cross mentioned that hundreds of people will lose their jobs at Blue Cross because those people are all people who work on the state health plan. So, yeah, uh, interesting times there. Um, also, we had a, um, an increase in the um, maximum contribution for campaign uh, contributions this year, thanks to inflation. We got a, a reasonable bump. I can't remember what the number is. but So it went from... 5,600 to 6,400 is a big bump in what uh, people can donate directly to someone's political campaign, a North Carolina state lawmaker's campaign, 
per election. So you can give cycle. You can give sixty four hundred for the primary, and then you can give sixty four hundred again for the general. That is tied to inflation. You know, it's not tied to inflation. Mm. Unemployment benefits, minimum wage. I just find it interesting that that's well, tied. Yeah, I gotta make sure those campaign <laughs> donations are tied to inflation. But let's not tie. So I, I mean, I should say food stamps are tied to inflation. So it's yeah. not. It's not across the board, but I just I always find that. You know what else is not tied to inflation? What? State employee pensions. Ah, there's a good one. Or state employee pay. Or state employee pay, for that matter. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of people who would like the same consideration out there, I'm I, sure. I suspect you are absolutely correct. And I probably ought to, we probably ought to note that there are all kinds of ways to donate to campaigns that don't have a limit. These limits are for individual campaigns. Like if Phil Berger is running, he has a campaign committee. You want to write him a check, that's your max. It's $6,400 for the primary, $6,400 for the general. If you want to give money to the state Republican Party, which can then give all that money to Phil Berger, you can give an unlimited an unlimited amount to the state Republican Party. And the same thing for Democrats, of course. Which is a loophole that has never made any sense to me. Yeah, it, it's, it's like, why bother? And there's not supposed to be any, co- any collusion between the person who gives the money to the party and the person that the party decides to give the money to. But come on. Yeah. I mean, we already had with Greg Lindbergh. I don't want to get too far off off topic here, but I mean, he went to federal prison for a little while for funneling money through the state Republican Party that was intended for insurance commissioner Mike Causey, who was wearing a wire for the FBI. Um, so, I mean, it was essentially a campaign. Still one of my favorite stories. <laughs> a campaign money laundering scheme um, that uh, didn't work out. But I mean, how often... It's easy to have a conversation and have there be no record of it. So I don't know how how you would police that. But, I mean, campaign finance is a morass uh, anyway. There's I, I've lived and covered this stuff in three states, have not seen the solution. So, In the meantime, um, I had a story up earlier this week, a little legislative preview, looking at what's likely to arise in the eyes of some experts. Um, expecting uh, Meredith Professor Dave McLennan is expecting to see more of the social issues that we haven't seen for the last four years because the Democrats have had that veto-proof majority for the last four years and legislators who certainly ventured into plenty of these sort of hot-button issues between 2011 and 2018 um, sort of pulled back a little bit. Um, and I don't know whether this legislative leadership just deciding on pragmatic basis that they didn't want to waste their time with it or what. Uh, but this is their chance now that they've got a quote-unquote functioning a supermajority in the House and an actual supermajority in the Senate, this is the chance to sort of resurface some of the bills that did not make it for the last few years. Um, things like the Parental Bill of Rights, for example, that's one that's been brought up. Uh, yeah, which to, limits the way you can discuss sex, gender, gender identity in schools. Right, exactly. Um, and so I suspect we will see some other things come up too, not just, a, we already know abortion's coming up. Right. But, we, but there's all kinds of other stuff that he suggested they might get into too, including Possibly um, tr- limiting transgender kids' um, participation in sports, possibility. Right. Um, all sorts of LGBTQ stuff that they could get into. So we'll be watching. I think it might be a really exciting session. I, I think you should get, you will get a read on what Republican leadership really wants to do on, you know, social cu- culture war issues. You know, now they're pretty close to having their chance. You know, they say they can pull one Democrat in the House. They've got the veto proof majority in the Senate. So it's no longer. Sometimes a bill passes and you think, now, do y'all really want that or do you want the issue and you want the governor to veto it? And then you can be like, oh, well, look, I mean, we tried, but Roy Cooper, you know, this despot is is vetoing everything. Well, once that is less on the table. It's put up or shut up. Yeah, we find out what you really want. And not only do we find out, but the activists who want this, that or the other. 
they find out. That's so right. So we'll see some, some some truer colors, I think, on that. And we should mention that the um, opening day session is on the 11th, and that's this coming Wednesday. Uh, we'll, there will not be any action. What they're going to do is they will come together. They will elect their speaker or uh, Senate leader. Yeah. Um, and With, then, without any uh, fireworks, we we, we would, we would yeah. think. We this would, is not going to be like Kevin McCarthy part two here. One would think. Um it has happened that way. Don't not forget. Not this year. Not this year. Way back in 2003, I think it was, was when this when this whole process got hung up in North Carolina. Um, but uh, not this time. But we're expecting a lot of pomp and circumstance, not a lot of substance. And then after that, they're going to take a break, a statutorily required break for right. a couple of weeks to allow for an organizational period for the Senate and House leaders to set up committees, et cetera, assign offices, et cetera, if they haven't already. Um, and then they're supposed to get to work in a couple weeks after that. Yeah, they'll come back on the 25th. I've got a long legislative preview running uh, this Sunday. Look for that at WRL.com. It's also got a piece where I did man-on-the-street interviews just asking random people in downtown Raleigh what they want their state legislature to do. I thought that was kind of interesting. That'll be attached to the story. and A poll I, of five. <laughs> I think we got closer to 20. but Oh, my goodness. It's, it's, it's almost statistically relevant. And, and yeah. <laughs> and, of course, look, look, legislative sessions are unpredictable, and maybe more so this year. You know, 25% of the House turned over in the last election. It was huge. 25% of the Senate, give or take, turned over in the last election. So it's a lot of new members. So when you hear leadership say, well, we don't know what we're going to do on this issue or that. We need to talk to our caucus. They are actually telling the truth, probably. They, they, yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're new members to this, these caucuses that they have to, to speak to. So we shall see what goes down. I think that's about it for us this week. I'll mention two other things real quick. Number one, uh, Richard Burr. Oh, yes. According to him, according to his office, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, has cleared him. Has cleared him. And y'all may remember he was accused of what I would call insider trading uh, back early in the pandemic when he was getting congressional briefings. He called his, was it his brother in law? And it, bottom line is they dumped a bunch of stock. Stock market went down after that. Stock market eventually went back up. I don't know how well he did on all this. Uh, but basically the accusation was, hey, he's using information that the public doesn't have to sell stocks. And meanwhile, he was kind of downplaying the, the series of the pandemic publicly. Well, the FBI looked into it and they never charged him. He said today, all right, the, the concurrent to the FBI investigation by the SEC has cleared me. Now, we have to take his word on that. The SEC won't comment on it. Famously, yeah. Famously, and they don't. You know, they didn't send us anything in writing, like on SEC letterhead saying he was cleared. But I assume, yes, this is what has happened. He will not face. Uh, there will be no comeuppance for whatever he did, uh, yeah. at then, least not officially. Although I imagine, how, you think he made more money on those stock trades than he spent on lawyers uh, throughout the process, the fallout of this? I don't know. I don't know. I'm betting he didn't. I'm betting this was a net loser. Uh, Yeah. And then there's also Mark Meadows will also not be charged. We learned that this week. He, um, was, there was some talk that he had cast a ballot, uh, registered to an address in North Carolina. Right. That he, a trailer, like a a, trailer. Yeah. Yeah. That he and his wife did not actually live in at the time. Uh, but there was an investigation into that by um, Attorney General Josh Stein here at the state level, and they said they could not conclusively prove that they voted when they were not here. Yeah, the the state State Bureau of Investigation investigated. They forwarded that to Stein. Stein's office said, yeah, we don't think we can win this case. We're not going to bring any charges. And one of the interesting things there, I think the newest thing, because, I mean, this all came out of a New Yorker story uh, that, that, I mean, it was clear he did not live at an address, but he voted 
in an election yes. while registered at that address. Uh, number one, you, you if you're a federal employee, it's it's looser because you have to be in D.C. so much and you have to have somewhere right. to live there. And two, there was a lease. So that was one of the things that I learned from, from Stein's office. Uh, they put out like a four or five page explainer why they weren't charging the man. And it said, oh, we, we found a lease. We don't think he ever actually spent the night at this place. But they can't prove it. But they probably yeah. can't prove it. And yeah. there there is a lease where they were paying for that address. So that that one that one goes away after months and months and months and months of uh, of behind the scenes investigation. The only other thing I've got, uh, Andrew Brown, new general counsel for the North Carolina Administrative Office of the Courts. Uh, that was according to a press release. I guess he replaces, is it Trey Allen? Yeah, because Trey Allen was elected and sworn in this week to the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court. Yeah, so he, he, yeah. He, Trey Allen moved from general counsel to the North Carolina Supreme Court, and Andrew Brown will be new general counsel at the AOC. That's all I got. That's all we got, too. So thanks very much for tuning in, and join us next week here on The Wrap.